morning, church. Um, I was reminded this morning as I, I like to stand in the back while uh, we sing when I'm preaching. And when I'm standing in the back, Silas always likes to sit down next to that black chair next to me. And uh, this morning, when we were singing the first song we were singing, he says to me, he comes up, he, he stops his drawing, he, he comes up, he says, Dad, did he say our God is the only God in heaven because he's the true God? I said, that's exactly right, son. That's exactly why he said that. But let that be a reminder from a five-year-old of why we sing the songs we sing. Because they speak truth, right? And a lot of times I think, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but a lot of times I think we walk in here and we just mindlessly go through the routines of Fellowship, hey, how you doing? Great to see you. What happened this week? Sunday school, yes. Second Samuel 15, good, good, good. Song, 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 sermon, song, go. Right? That's what we do. And we mindlessly just run through all of this stuff. But there's meaning behind what we do. Right? There's meaning behind the gathering. There's meaning behind the fellowship. There's meaning behind the Bible study. There's meaning behind the conversation. There's meaning behind the songs. There's meaning in the text. Right? And what a reminder that was. That was fantastic. Um, so I wanted to share that with you guys. Um, as Jeff had started us this morning with that Vince Lombardi quote about this is a football and this is a church, I mean, how right he is, right? That's why we're looking at Titus. That's why we are spending uh, these two months walking through this book. And so just by way of reminder, right, uh, we've got this letter written to this young pastor who's placed on the island of Crete. The letter was written by the Apostle Paul, and it was meant to instruct this young pastor, Titus, on what to do with the new believers that are popping up in Crete, right? Remember, this is the ancient Near East. Jesus has only died within maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 years of this written letter. And so it can be assumed that a lot of the people on the island of Crete were not believers. They had no... Uh, they had no uh, cultural association with Christianity and the practices of Christianity. So we can assume that uh, this whole thing that Titus is doing, that Paul did, is completely foreign, literally, to them. And remember, this island of Crete was one that was also infamously known for its hedonism, for its I do what I want, enjoy what I want, regardless of what that means type of attitude. That was Crete. Sounds a lot like the United States right now, right? Yes, we live on the border of the Bible Belt. We might even be in the Bible Belt, depending on if you're from the north or the south. Cultural Christianity is dwindling here. It's dwindling. The younger generations, this is foreign to them. This is foreign. Many of those in the northeast who are my generation... This is foreign to them. This is something that, yeah, this, I have not heard this. Okay? And it confronts, and it confronts, and it confronts. And that's what Paul and Titus are doing with these young, immature believers on the island of Crete. They are establishing local congregations. This letter Paul wrote was meant to be read to the Cretans. They were supposed to hear it. Paul begins the letter, right, with his introduction, which we spent time in. And he goes right into the qualifications of being an elder. Who it is that needs to lead the church. 
what these men are to look like, act like, be like. Why do we need to have these men who are leading in this manner? Because as Matthew preached last week, there is danger always lurking. Because there is wolves. There are wolves. There are people out there coming within to try and seek and destroy what the Lord is building. There are wolves. And so there must be qualified men to lead and guard the church. And the congregation, the lay people, must also be well informed. Because a pastor cannot live with you side by side every second of your day in every single thing that you do. So is there, there is a responsibility of the layperson to have an awareness of sound doctrine. But what we're going into now here as we get into Titus 2, that awareness of sound doctrine must translate to an awareness of sound living. As lay people in the church, there is an expectation of what our lives look like. And the Cretans of the ancient Near East would have no idea of what that is to be. And so we have Paul writing Titus 2 to Titus, to the church, for our benefit now today too. In a society in which men and women don't know who they are. So that's where we are. Let's look at our text today. Titus 2, 1 to 10 says this, but as for you, speaking directly to Titus, as for you, Titus, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husband, husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, meaning Titus, but I think also the young men, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not, uh, but showing all good faith so that in everything may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. They may adorn everything. Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, for your text that we have here in front of us, meant to instruct and guide and lead. And it's a text that our church needs to hear today, that believers of today need to know. So Lord, may, may you give me grace in teaching this text May we have grace in receiving your word. May your spirit transform us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, to carry on the sports analogy uh, that we began the day with, sports analogies are often quite good for church, um, church life, though not perfect. Uh, many of you guys in this church, just because I know this body, have partaken in a sports team 
in some form or fashion for a long time. Many of us have been ingrained in a sport or a team uh, for many, many, many years of our lives. We've dedicated a lot of time to that team. And when you are part of a team, the health of that team is often determined by the expectations that are laid out for a team. A coach, a general manager, or whatever, can come in and lay out specific expectations and build a specific and certain culture that can lead to success, that can lead to, to uh, high performance on the field, that can lead to good impact in community, all of those things. But we all know situations in which there are sports teams in which the culture is a complete and utter train wreck, in which you literally are watching the team explode on the field. Think of a recent NFL superstar who walked off in the first quarter or second quarter of a game. The culture is just destructive. Is destructive. 2008, my favorite, one of my favorite soccer teams in the world, FC Barcelona, got a new soccer coach. His name was Pep Guardiola. Pep Guardiola is a Spanish coach. He played for Barcelona in the 90s, the dream team of the 90s. Um, and he played for a coach who revolutionized the game of soccer. He revolutionized the culture of the team. He revolutionized the way the game was played. And Pep Guardiola was quite literally his disciple. And in 2008, he left the youth ranks, coaching the youth teams in Barcelona, and took over the first team spot. He coached the first team, the top professional team. When he took over, there were some huge superstars on that team. There was a guy named Ronaldinho, a Brazilian player, uh, just complete electric, the most creative person I've ever seen on a soccer ball. There was a guy named Zlatan Ibrahimovic. He's like 45 right now, and he still plays. The guy is like 6'4", scores millions of goals. He was there. Deco, a midfielder, uh, just class on the ball. Pep Guardiola comes in. Oh, Samuel Eto as well. Can't forget him. The Cameroonian forward who scored lots of goals with Zlatan as well. Pep Guardiola comes in in 2008. By 2009, all of them are gone. They're gone. Deco's gone. Zlatan's gone. Samuel Eitao's gone, Ronaldinho's gone, gone. Why? Not because they were the best players in the world, which they were, but because the culture and the expectation that Pep Guardiola set for FC Barcelona, the way they were going to play, how they were going to be, those four players, along with some others, were going to destroy the culture. They were going to completely ruin it because of their attitudes, their personas, the way they played the game. They were destructive to the culture of the team. So he got rid of all of them. And then the teams that uh, Pep Guardiola coached, the Barcelona teams from 08 to 2012 when he left, are some of the best soccer teams I have ever seen in my life. The way they played the game was perfection, quite literally. As literal, as close to perfection as you could be. And that's kind of what Paul is getting at with Titus when we look at Titus 2. It's not so much, yes, get out if you're not willing to fit the mold. That's not the point that I'm trying to make here. But the point is there are expectations of culture. There are, uh, and I don't mean culture in terms of a society culture. I don't mean that. I mean in terms of how we are engaged with one another, the culture of a community, I mean. There is an expectation of life, 
of being within the local church. And Paul lays that out in 1 Timothy. Paul lays that out in Titus. Paul lays that out in Ephesians, which we're going to talk about. There is an expectation of how our lives are to be uh, um, lived when we are followers of Jesus Christ and members of a local church. That's the point. That's the point of this text. That's the point of Titus 2. That's the point of where we are going today. And Pep Guardiola is a perfect example of culture, of expectation. So let's look at the text. First thing that we need to note, the first thing we must, must, must note, and you've heard us say it over and over and over again, your manner of living, your manner of living speaks volumes about your faith and your doctrine. Your manner of living speaks volumes about your faith and your doctrine. I don't need to look at, hear your words to see your faith and your doctrine. Paul says this, but as for you, talking to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So he goes from, from this whole uh, <clears throat> paragraph about rebuking false teachers, silencing them, into you must teach sound doctrine. And guess what? Your sound doctrine is this, that older men are to be sober-minded. The doctrine that Paul goes into for Titus is that your doctrine is the way in which you live. How you live shows what you really believe, not what your mouth says you believe. Right? Sandwiched in here, we have this, this, this discussion, this, this very, very passing sentence that you must teach what accords with sound doctrine, followed by a two paragraphs, three paragraphs of what your life is to look like, because that accords with sound doctrine. Theoretical faith versus real faith. Faith in theory, doctrine in theory, beautiful, great, fantastic. Plenty of people here imbibe that. But it's the real part. It's the real life faith, right? Some things I know we love to bash. Uh, what's the, the Francis of Assisi quote? Uh, that's attributed to him at least, to... to, to preach the gospel and when do, when, when do, or, and use words when necessary, something like that, right? We love to smash that in Louisville in the seminary culture. <laughs> we need to preach the gospel with words too, blah, blah, blah. We love that, right? We love to beat that quote up. But there's some real truth to that quote in terms of if our lives aren't actually representing the words we're speaking, then just be quiet because you've failed. It's not true, Right? So as much as we want to smash that quote, maybe we need to think about it a little more before we bash it down. Because our lives are very indicative of our faith. Think of the whole book of James. Think of the whole book of James. I'm not going to read these two long passages to you. James 1, 19 to 27. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because guess what? When you're, dis, when you're, when you're hearers of the word and not doers of it, Paul or, or James 
you're lying to yourself. If your life doesn't replicate the words you say, you're lying to yourself. You are deceiving yourself. James uh, chapter 2, verses 14 to 25. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James goes so far as to ask. We're not saved by our works, but our works are certainly indicative of our salvation. Certainly indicative of the work that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, has personally done and applied in our hearts. Certainly does. Think of Matthew chapter 25 and the parable of the goats and the sheep. Right? They're separated. Some are condemned to hell. Others will be in eternity. And Well, why are we condemned? Well, when the cold needed clothing, you didn't give it to them. When the hungry needed food, you didn't give it to them. When the sick needed medication, you didn't give them to them. Well, when did, when did we see you, Jesus, needing food and clothes and medicine? When did we see you doing that? It's those that you have done unto the least of these that you have done this to them. Right? The point being, our actions are important. The faith that we proclaim actually needs to have street-level ground level value to it and the way our lives are to look speaks volumes there who you are outside of these walls when you leave here in 45 minutes who you are is important what other people say about you and who you are can be indicative of your quality or your characters your characteristics your character. But let us also, let us also not be fooled that it is only and purely the grace of our Lord and Savior in which we can be transformed into such people that represent him with our lives. We must, we must press into his mercy and grace. We must press in to his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection. And that great exchange that he has done for us. Because if we don't, if we purely like to study the doctrine of election because it sounds cool, but we really don't understand that you personally have been chosen from before the foundations of the world, and Jesus Christ quite literally came into this world and quite literally died a terrible death and quite literally rose again to redeem a people for himself and quite literally will return again to take us into this new kingdom, into this kingdom... If we've missed that, then your doctrine of election means nothing. Means nothing. We must press into the mercy and grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in order to in any way, shape, or form have the verses of uh, 2 to 10 be honorable and glorifying to him. We must. Number two. God has outlined for us how our lives as men and as women of the church are to look. He has given us very clear indications, very clear markings, very clear guidelines of what our lives as men are to look like 
and what our lives as women are to look like. As I said before, the island of Crete, you can assume that in no way, shape, or form was there uh, society uh, in any way culturally Christian, not, not, not to mention truly following Christ, right? So we have Paul here to Titus offering a corrective of what the lives of men who proclaim Christ and women who proclaim Christ are to be within the body. We have a corrective. And what a time in our day in which a corrective is so vital and necessary. We have a society now. We have a society now in which the effects of the sexual revolution, of feminism, of our present LGBTQ movements that have completely and totally blurred the lines of God's definition. You go and talk to some people who are not just, not just CRT people, but critical theory people, uh, the, the umbrella of CRT, you go and talk to those people and it's like you can't even navigate what they're saying. We have pronouns in which we are literally, quite literally, changing the foundation and fabric of our language to blur those lines. They, them, has always been plural. Talking about two or more people, not one person. Quite literally, the fabric of our language, not just like the society, but our language is being manipulated and blurred by the revolutions that have happened in our society. So what else, too? Just like Crete, in the 60s, 30 years after Jesus Christ, Paul is offering a corrective. So here, Paul is still offering a corrective for 2022 in America. Because the lines have been blurred. The lines have been blurred. And the sad thing, and the scary thing, and the thing I've spent too much of this week doing, is in the church, we've responded to society's blurring with the pendulum effect, right? We all know the pendulum effect. The pendulum has swung in the complete opposite direction too, not in a biblical way, but just in a societal way, in which manhood is now defined by chopping trees down and big beards and big mustaches and drinking lots of beer and loving sports and shooting guns and fighting and aggression. That's manhood now. But I hate to break it to you guys, that's not biblical manhood. That's not what the Bible tells men to be. Though all those things, I like guns, I like beards, and, you know, that's cool. I like that stuff. That doesn't make me a man in no way, shape, or form. And the same is true of women, right? We have the pendulum swinging, too. The pendulum swings to which women now, at least in reformed circles, and I think in an unbiblical way, are to be, like, enslaved to their husbands and to not be allowed to leave the home. And to, I mean, heaven forbid they think about something other than their home for a little while. The pendulum swings. And I, we, need to make sure that pendulum swinging doesn't, isn't, 
defined by societal's push of the pendulum. The pendulum swinging must land where scripture lands, not in response to society. So let's look. Older men, older men, who are they to be? What are older men to be? Sober-minded, getting ahead of myself. I don't even know where I am on my notes pages now. Sober-minded, older men, don't have a number for that. Could be 25 if they're mature. Paul is very clear to Timothy that age, don't let people look down upon you because of your age. But older men are to be sober-minded. What does that mean? They're to be temperate in their thinking. The temperance movement, right, of the 1910s and 20s, what was that? Temperance of the use of alcohol. Caution in the use of alcohol. Of course, it led to none whatsoever, but temperance means Caution, precaution, not given to extremes. Sober-minded individuals are not given over to their passions. Their passions, the things they enjoy, are enjoyed in moderation, whether that's sports, whether that's anything. I'm not specifically speaking of alcohol. Their things that they enjoy are not idols. They are enjoyed as gifts from the Lord in moderation. Sober-minded men are not given over to passions that disturbs their thinking, that disturbs their judgment. They're so quick to react that their judgment is hindered and they do things that are stupid. Older men are not to be defined in that way. They're to be sober-minded, rational, thoughtful, patient, which we'll get to in a minute, temperate in their thinking. Older men are to be dignified. They're to be worthy of respect. We see them, we know them, and we admire them for the lives that they have lived because their lives have merited that admiration. Not just because they are older, not just because they've experienced life, but because they are so dignified that their lives command admiration because of their godly living. Dignified. They're to be self-controlled, connected to sober-minded. And this is interesting. Men and women, self-controlled. This is something that is in both lists for both. Older, younger, older, younger. Men and women. Self-controlled. They're to be sober-minded. Self-controlled. They are not given to their passions. They are disciplined in their livelihood. They have discipline over themselves. They can control themselves. And then the Holy Triumvirate of qualities and not Rush, the 80s band. No one knows Rush? The Holy Triumvirate? All right. But anyways, older men are to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older men's lives are to be so categorized and so characterized by their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we see them and we see 
a biblical life. We see someone who cannot, does not sway from anything else and is walking and defined in everything they do by our Lord and Savior. They are sound in faith. They are sound in love. They're not given to rash anger. They're not given to rash dismissal of others. They're not given to rash stereotypes and hatred of people around them. They love those around them. And they are steadfast. They are patient in endurance. Jacob this morning's teaching on Absalom and his impatience and the destruction that comes from impatience. Older men are to be steadfast. Their lives are to be characterized by slow patience and waiting. They know pushing the action button too quickly can lead to huge damaging consequences. Their lives are defined by patient endurance. The Lord has been patiently enduring for thousands of years and he still is patiently waiting. Older women. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. Reverent in behavior. Think about that. Older women, godly women, their lives are to possess a demeanor that suits a sacred character. An elder woman in the church, an older woman following Christ, their lives are to possess a demeanor that suits a sacred character. Think about that. In Greek, the, the, the language that is used is, 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 is connoting a, a, a priestess. An older Christian woman, their life is to appear as a priestess for our Lord and Savior. A priestess. Their lives demonstrate a nearness, a closeness to the living God. Their lives demonstrate a nearness in prayer. They demonstrate a nearness in, in in their love for neighbors, their lives demonstrate a nearness through their Bible reading, through their scripture intake, through their practicing of the means of grace. For they are, in many ways, priestesses. Their lives are to be categorized by this demeanor of, 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 that suits a sacred character. Elder women, older women are not to be slanderers. They're not to be malicious and gossipy in their talk. Talk that is happening behind backs, that is happening in secret, that is happening in private about others. What does that do? It stirs and stirs and stirs until finally the poison has been worked throughout. When the poison has been worked throughout, it's really hard to get the poison out again. Older women are to not be categorized by that. And the Greek term here used is diabolos. It sounds a lot like our English word diabolical. Where do you think the word comes from? Slander and gossip behind others' backs is quite literally devilish. It's diabolical. 
It is destructive. Women, elder women, anybody, again, not just women, but men, gossip is devilish. Elder women, not to be, uh, what does it say here, to, be, to quote it specifically, uh, not to be slaves to much wine. So we have here, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. What are they supposed to have? Controlled tongues. Controlled lives. What are men supposed to have? Self-control. Women are supposed to be, guess what? Another way of saying that is, guess what? Self-control. In their tongue. In their living. Yes, we cannot be enslaved to alcohol. We cannot be enslaved to anything. Again, that leads to, well, not being sober-minded. You're enslaved to something. You're not sober-minded. You're not self-controlled. You are given over to passions and lusts of the flesh. Paul continues. They are to teach what is good. Elder women are to teach what is good. The proliferation of godly living is not solely the job of the pastor. Elder women are to teach younger women what is good. To teach what is good. The proliferation of godly living comes through elder women and elder men into younger women and to younger men. And here's what Paul continues. Teach what is good and so train. And so train the young Women to love their husbands and children. Before I get ahead of myself. This, this, this passage from Paul would have been a huge disruption to societal norms in the ancient Near East. You mean women are supposed to teach anything? That was disruptive. The ancient Near East, no. Women are not teaching a thing. Why is it so, why was it so scandalous that the angel at the, at the empty tomb spoke to a woman first? Because that woman's word would have been nothing. But Paul is elevating that here. The gospel of Jesus Christ, Christianity, properly and uprightly I, uh, raises these standards. Women are to teach they're to teach what is good. They're to teach and train up younger women. That would have been unheard of in the ancient Near East. But Paul tells them to do so. And they're to teach them, to train them up, to train up these younger women regarding uh, their marriage and their family. Their marriage and their family. So that's why Paul says, train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled. There it is again. Pure. Working at home. Kind and submissive to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be reviled. So younger women. Moving on from the elder, the older, to the younger. Younger women are to love their husbands and children. They are of, it is of primary importance. 
It is of primary importance. Loving your spouse well is loving your children well. Loving your children is nurturing, caring, raising, protecting, teaching, consoling. All of these things is of primary importance. And we'll get to to working at home here in a second. But Paul continues... Women, younger women are to be self-controlled and pure. I think these two go together. If you're not self-controlled, you will not be pure. You will defile yourself. And as Paul wrote in the end of Titus 1, right, those who are, to, to those who are unpure, nothing is pure. If you are not pure, you will be defiled. We are self-controlled and pure in our fidelity to who? To the Lord pure in our fidelity to our family. Paul is calling the younger women. Working at home, this is a biggie, especially in our pendulum-swinging day and age. I do not, in any shape or form, believe that this means women cannot have jobs outside of the home. That is not this meaning. You read Proverbs 31? She had a job. She made money. She cared for her family. Paul's friend Lydia, she had a job. She made money. She did well for herself. She was rich, actually, it sounds like, based on their friendship. I don't believe that that is in any way what this text says. Hear me clearly. However, I will also say, I do believe what this text says is that our home, the care of the home, is of primary importance. If we are forsaking our home, for the, a career, for money, for anything other than care of our family, we are disobedient to that text. We are to be younger women. Women are, it's home workers is what that text says. Home workers of primary importance for, for a mother and a wife is care of the home. But again, Can a woman care for a home and have a job? I know lots of women who have a job and yet still primarily care and raise godly homes. I don't think that's what Paul means. And if we do think that, then we have to scrap Proverbs 31 and we have to forget Lydia exists. And I don't think we can do that. Younger women are to be, where am I again? Lost my spot. Kind. Again, probably connecting to this working at home that Paul was just discussing. Kind. Uh, Agathos. Good or purposeful. With an emphasis on purposeful. A young woman is to be purposeful and productive in caring for their family. I think that's what Paul's meaning when he says kind. Good and purposeful. A younger woman is purposeful in caring for their family and submissive to husbands. Submissive to husbands. I have to read Ephesians 5. I know I'm pushing the clock here, but I have to read Ephesians 5. We have to hear Ephesians 5. Wives, because this is an important point for both men and women. Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your husbands. So why are we doing this? Why is all of this necessary that Paul is writing to Titus? He tells us in Ephesians 5. Why? Because wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. 
his body and is himself its savior. The church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, this is for you, young men and older men. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We have this, if someone walked in here today who is not a believer and heard us talk all about this submission to husbands thing, wow, that is controversial. And it might sound to those outside that a lot of this burden is being placed on the young women and the, young, and the, the women in these marriage relationships. And there is responsibility. But men, you are not free from that responsibility. Again, the pendulum swinging effect of manhood, it is not being aloof from your family. It is not being absent so you can make money. A man's responsibility in the home, guess what, is equally as prevalent as the woman's. It's just different. That's complementarianism. Men, your job is to love your wife as Christ loves the bride. Men, think about what that means. Manhood is defined by self-sacrificial love and even death, if necessary, for your wife and family. That's manhood. It doesn't matter if you're an IT computer nerd or you're butch he-man that lives down the road. Neither of those are qualifications for manhood. It's the fact that you are willing to train your Wife, and teach your children and protect them and provide for them and serve them to the point of death so that you may present your family as holy and blameless as Christ presents us holy and blameless. Men, that is your job. That is your job. That is your job. Our job in the home is equally as present as the women's. It's just different. Younger men, be self-controlled. There it is again, four times. Self-controlled. We think of like Thor in the beginning of the first Thor movie on Disney+. Plus, right? Thor is a complete nutcase. He wants to go fight everybody and be just ready to war immediately. Young men, that's not you. His dad wants him to be patient. No, you can't go and do this. Thor goes and does it, and he ruins a lot of stuff for himself. Young men, you're supposed to be self-controlled, patient. You are to be a model of good works. Paul calls this for, for Titus. He calls, I think, for the young men. They are to be models of good work, contrasting with the false teachers. Those who are, uh, going back to, first to uh, Titus 1, those unfit for any good work. A young man who is following Christ is to be a model of good works. Their lives are to demonstrate their devotion to Jesus Christ. They are to show integrity, and I think this is speaking to Titus, to show integrity in his teaching and to show dignity in his teaching. Again, contrasting that from Titus 1 with the false teachers. They teach for shameful gain. They lie, they turn away from the truth. Those are all things Matthew read last week. But Titus... The young men, the elders, are to show integrity in their teaching. 
the antithesis to the false teacher. They are to have purity in motive and in their teaching. Their teaching is to be pure. As Titus wrote, or Paul wrote to Titus, right? What did he say at the end of one? To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Our motives in preaching and teaching are to be pure. Do I become a pastor because I think the daytime hours are fantastic? I get to meet with people, read books and sermon prep, and I can be lazy? A lot of guys go into seminary thinking that's their life and ministry. That's a flat-out lie, and you shouldn't be in ministry if you think that's what you're going to get out of it. No, our, 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 our ministry, our teaching is to be pure in its motives. Our teaching is to be pure. It is to be abounding in truth. Again, contrasting with what Matthew read last week. To the empty talkers uttering empty, senseless things. These young men who are following Christ are to speak purely. Their truth is to be taught out of pure motives so as to silence the wolves, to silence the opponent. And then fast, we've got to do this, I'm sorry, but we have to look at the bondservants passage. We too regularly skip the bondservants passage. And if we think back to Galatians 5, right? What does Galatians 5 that I preached on a few months ago tell us? That we are to be enslaved to each other within the church. So it would do us well to look at the bondservant passages. We are to, through love, serve one another, quoting Galatians 5. The term doulos, used to serve one another, means slave. We are to literally be enslaved to one another within the body of Christ. We are bondservants to one another. We are enslaved to something. It's either Jesus Christ and our church members, or we are enslaved to sin and death, one or the other. We are bondservants, whether you like it or not. We are not bondservants in the way the ancient Near East had slaves and bondservants, but we are slaves to Christ, or we are slaves to sin. So we must look at it. Okay? So the, the, the bondservants' passages. As servants, as slaves to one another... Maybe as employer to employee, uh, other way around, employee to employer, or as slaves to one another, as slaves to Christ, we are to be submissive to one another. Our motives or our desires, maybe they're not so important. Maybe I need to think of my brother or sister to the next chair over. They are well pleasing. They are well pleasing. They're not argumentative. We all know those types. You maybe work with those types that, or go to class with those types. All they want to do is confront and argue with the professor or all they want to do is push back against the boss because they think they know what's better. Don't be that person. Whether it's in class, whether it's in church, whether it's at, at your work, don't be that person. Be wise in how you push back. Be thoughtful and loving and gracious and how you confront. Be well-pleasing. People to think well of who you are and not see you and be like, oh, man, turn around and go the other way. We don't want to be those types. We don't want to be those people. It's not, I don't think, what Titus is calling a believer to be. We're not to be pilfering, not stealing from one another. And finally, they show all good faith. They have fidelity towards each other. They are faithful to each other. 
there. In this specific context, the slave is faithful to his master so as to adorn the doctrine of God. We are to be faithful to each other. As slaves to one another, as Paul writes in Galatians, love one another, serve one another, slaves to one another, we are to show good faith and fidelity towards each other. We made a covenant here as a church, as, as believers. We are bonded together by something that is invisible and yet more powerful than anything else, and that is the blood of Christ. If we can't be faithful to one another, who are we going to be faithful toward? So again, as we close, think of, think of, 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 that, of that little... Uh, quip I said earlier about Pep Guardiola and FC Barcelona and the fact that he had set standards for living in that team. He had set standards and expectations for who his players were to be. Titus, Paul, the Holy Spirit, God has done just that for the people of his church. And I skipped over these parts in the text, but here's why. We are to be these things. Older men, older women are to be these things so the word of God is not reviled. So the word of God is not hated and despised and kicked away. We are to actually demonstrate these things to show the value, the authenticity, the truth of God's word. We are to be these things, younger men, younger women, uh, so opponents may be silenced and have nothing evil to say. Younger men, we act as a godly young man. Our opponents should have nothing legitimate to say against us. They might say stuff that is slanderous and false, but there should be no legitimate charge that they can place against you. And finally, this was specifically to the bondservants, to the slaves. But, so as to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I love this. What does it mean to adorn something? It means to accentuate the beauty that already exists. So living in submission to others, as slaves to each other, as slaves to Jesus Christ, we accentuate the beauty of the gospel that already exists. We demonstrate that. That's what our lives are to do, to show an adherence to the word, to demonstrate lives gospel-saturated to the glory of God and to the advancement of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace. There's a lot to be said and probably many more weeks of teaching that could happen on those 10 passages, but Lord, may your spirit do its work, his work, may your spirit do his work for the good of our church, the health of our people, for the health of me, and for your glory in who we are as a local church. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.